Matthew 10:16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak and what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will but deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Uh, So read, apparently, the advertisement placed in the Times of London, December 1913, to which, apparently, 5,000 eager volunteers responded to join Shackleton's exploration. And I say apparently because when I mentioned this to Wes last week, he came back a couple of days later and told me that the story is entirely apocryphal. Instead, he pointed me to the advertisement for the Pony Express from St. Joseph, Missouri, to California, in less than 10 days. Young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert rider, willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred. Well, I looked it up. Historian Joseph Nardoni has determined that this advertisement was apocryphal. So where's (laughs) Touche? But Jesus' words are not apocryphal, and verse 16 carries precisely that sentiment. They are no hoax, And they're borne out by the historical record of Jesus' own treatment, as we can see over the page in verse 34, a disciple is not above, to verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher. And also the historical record of Jesus' disciples' deaths. So verse 16, page 25 of the Matthew's Gospels, Behold, says Jesus, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, Jesus is speaking to his 12 disciples. They are the 12 apostles. They have been commissioned by him to go urgently to the lost sheep of the people of Israel, announcing as they go the arrival of Jesus as God's long-promised Messiah and the coming of God's judgment. The kingdom has arrived, they are to proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come. He's judgeable, and he offers salvation to anybody who will turn to him. That is the essence and the core of the Christian message. Jesus Christ is king. He offers salvation. He returns as judge. Now, I've only once seen a flock of sheep at the mercy of wolves. In fact, it was a Great Dane and an Alsatian. But by the time we dealt with the dogs, there was carnage, 
and the rest of the day was spent with needle and thread sewing up those lambs and sheep that could be saved. The sheep is defenseless. The sheep is vulnerable. The sheep is weak. The sheep has no claws or fangs with which to stave off bloodthirsty predators. The wolf is ruthless. And it is striking, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus, who has just declared himself to have compassion for the vast crowds because they are as sheep without a shepherd, then as the chief shepherd commissions his disciples to go out and to find themselves as sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, To be wise as a serpent may carry the sense of the serpent in the garden who showed in Genesis chapter 3 extraordinary shrewdness in crafting his clever suggestions. Be wise like that, be shrewd, think carefully, don't rush in unaware, plan your approach. Now I always study the passage I'm going to speak on on a Monday with a group as part of the preparation. I try and finish writing the talk and then we go and study in one of the banks near here with a Christian group in that bank. And the bank that uh, we go to, or I go to, they there, the Christian group, have made the most of everything going in their favor. Um, Yesterday in the Bible study there, they told me about how they're using the categories of balance and diversity and inclusion and so forth to make space for the Christian group in that bank. Now, is that what it means to be as wise as a serpent? The serpent is also wise in its ability to be alert to danger and to slip away. So earlier, John the Baptist says, you brood of serpents, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I guess both are included. He tells them to move on to the next place and so forth. But Jesus' apostles are to realize that as they come proclaiming the arrival of Jesus Christ as God's king, risen and ascended, enthroned, Lord of all, as they come proclaiming the arrival of God's king to a people who have resolutely resisted the rule of God for centuries, their reception will be colder than frosty. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I guess as I've been considering this over the last 10 days or so, it makes me ask the question of myself, am I too naive? Have I failed to grasp that the opposition to the Christian gospel in any culture will be as brutal and ruthless and merciless as a wolf when it smells blood or when its killer instinct is up. The dove is stressed, I think, on the basis of innocence. The word is pure, literally unmixed, without guile. Because the Lord Jesus is king, it's an objective reality. He's the only one who's risen from the grave. He's been declared Lord and King, judge of all by God the Father then we don't need to use twisted means or convoluted methods. The Apostle Paul speaks of a plain presentation of the truth. We don't need to duck or weave or dress the message up in culturally credible camouflage. 
the king has come. Judgment must follow. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about heaven and hell. Jesus is enthroned. He offers salvation. That's the message. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But as we speak plainly and without disguise, be in no doubt we will be amongst wolves. And when Jesus speaks of wolves from verses 17 through 23, it's quite apparent he's speaking about people, religious authorities, secular powers, workplace cultures, indeed even our own relatives, and everyone. So here is the headline point for today's consideration for the Christian disciple. The Lord Jesus looks out on the vast crowds flocking into the city every day across the bridges, uh, in through the rail stations and terminals and so forth, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable, uh, clueless, needing spiritual leadership. And that in itself tells us something about Jesus' analysis of 21st century city culture. Sheep without a shepherd. He has great compassion on them. He prays that the Lord of the harvest will thrust out laborers into the harvest field. He sends out the laborers. Go and proclaim, offer peace with God. But be in no doubt Expect conflict, be prepared for opposition, don't be surprised by it. Now one of the things I love about the teaching of Jesus is that there is no small print. If anyone will come after me, they must take up their cross daily. Any one of you who does not renounce everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, wanted men and women who are ready to declare the truth with courage and conviction, whatever the consequence. Now, I'm tempted simply to stop at this point and chart some of the kind of hostility that we might face, and we're going to come to that in a moment or two. But prior to that, just a comment, I think, on my own naivety, and my over-readiness to compensate for what I might consider offensive in the Christian gospel, rather than to say it without guile, as it is. Naivety. The first person I ever shared the Christian gospel with, you know, I was expecting them to receive the message with open arms. In fact, I saw him just earlier this week. Uh, last week, rather, a, a, a memorial service. And I remember thinking of all of my friends at university as I came, as a new Christian, having heard the wonderful news of Jesus Christ and had my life, as it were, turned upside down. What a way to live. What a Lord to follow. What a salvation to speak of. Met with, well, you know, William's gone slightly mad. I think they, were, they thought I was slightly mad already, but, you know, we must rescue him from this madness. I mean, I think of uh, Tom Holland. You know, I'm a bit of a fan of the rest of history. I kind of listen to it in the bath and that sort of thing. Uh, not in the shower, but anyway. The, uh, Tom Holland, you know, he's written this uh, 
number of pieces now demonstrating conclusively that everything we hold dear in our culture in terms of human rights and workplace ethics, it all comes down through the Christian stream, the Sermon on the Mount and so forth, as whole cultures have been turned around. You would think people would welcome the Christian gospel. I thought about it a lot over the last couple of days with the breaking news around Russell Brand. You know, with the scandals and the sordid sexual ethics of Hollywood and actually the entire entertainment industry, as they disparage marriage and so forth. And then you look at the beauty of the Christian teaching on marriage and the stability of homes and children growing up in stable homes. You'd think a culture would welcome it. Not a bit of it. How naive I am. Well, how will this conflict manifest itself? Two ways, I think, religious and relational. Let's take the religious first. And again, there's another big surprise here, isn't there, in verse 17 through 19. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you're to say, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, here we have the religious authorities of the day. We can see that they're religious from looking closely at verse 17. Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. So the courts are their courts, the religious courts, the ecclesiastical courts, and the synagogues are the religious assemblies. And is this not most surprising? We would expect the religious to welcome those proclaiming the coming of God's king. This is the moment they've been anticipating. But there are vested interests. There's envy and jealousy. And there's that kind of knee-jerk rejection of a presentation of this new king who might rattle the status quo. And that's precisely what we witness. Uh, On a Sunday evening here, I know a number of you are part of the Sunday evening congregation here at 6 o'clock, we've been tracking through the Acts of the Lord Jesus in the book known as the Acts of the Apostles. Should be the Acts of the Lord Jesus, we discover. But we've been seeing in the particular section we're looking at the mighty growth of Jesus' word that triumphs. That's the way the author of Acts puts it. But all the time, this hostility. The Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob against the preachers. When the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Surprising? That the opposition comes first and foremost from the establishment religious? We should expect hostile opposition as we proclaim King Jesus to a people who have rejected the word of God and the rule of God. And it will come first off from the established religious. So we sought to start a new work amongst young people down in Fleet Street. And we began meeting in a little old church there called St. Dunstan's in the West. It's a great little building. And I discovered there was a plaque there saying that William Remain used to preach there. William Remain was a fine preacher in the 18th century. 
And lo and behold, you, you look up the history of William Romain and you discover, yes, he did preach there, but he was locked out of the church by the vicar and was only allowed in eventually as a result of a court case for one hour a week. And the vicar and parishioners of the church refused to heat the church or light it. And it was always rather quaint, the idea, you know, of preaching in the same pulpit as William Romain, who used to stand there apparently with a lit taper over his text as he preached to a packed church. And Fleet Street was blocked to traffic before he began his talk. But he'd been locked out by the vicar. And we were thrown out by the vicar, actually. Subsequently, we had 20 or 30 young people. I don't know what it was, jealousy, whatever it was. But eventually, we were thrown out. And we had to go and meet in the pub opposite. And we were thrown out just before Christmas. Uh, And I remember somebody, some wag, noting that it was rather ironic that there was room in the inn when we'd been thrown out of the church by the vicar. But isn't it striking? You sort of think, well, this is strangely odd. Oh, no, says Jesus, beware of men. They'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their own synagogues. But more than that, verse 18, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. It seems then that the establishment religious will even go so far as leveraging or leveraging the establishment secular when they deliver you over. And I think it's worth pausing on this point. You know, the established religious are the establishment religious because they have endeared themselves to the establishment. And where the establishment is no longer Christian or is anti-Christian, then the establishment religious will side with the establishment over against the proclamation of King Jesus. And the establishment religious will leverage the establishment laws to preserve their position. And you see that in every age. It's true in Nazi Germany. It's true in secularist Britain. Any number of government churches in regimes across the world, you'll find it's the case. How do you become the establishment religious? Only through a lifetime of micro-concessions to the mood of the age. Each one justifiable in its own context. But gradually, incremental shift by incremental shift, you drift into a form of religion that is acceptable to the establishment, the spiritual wing of the secular power the acceptable face of a culture and a movement that is fundamentally hostile to God, but the acceptable face, the religious spiritual wing. And they will only preserve their place then at the top table as they continue to kowtow to the pagan norms of whatever authority happens to be the one they're serving. And as soon as the true gospel is proclaimed in that culture, there is a king. His name is Jesus. He commands us to turn, to live under his rule. He offers salvation. He will come as judge. Well, you'll find the establishment religious finding it far too hot to handle and ducking under the parapet and even handing the gospel spokesperson over 
to the secular authority. Uh, We witness this again and again and again. Isn't it striking what the crowd call out when they seek to have Jesus crucified? Do you remember in uh, John's Gospel? We have no king but Caesar. It's extraordinary, isn't it? They were religious Jews. We have no king but Caesar. Or the religious accusing Jason there in Thessalonica, these men are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, verses 19 and 20 are not a proof text for preachers who fail to prepare. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for this, for, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. It's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Notice the purpose of the opposition in verse 8 is to bear witness. It's important we remember that. When we are hauled in front of the authorities, the purpose of being hauled in front of the authorities is not to establish my defense. It's to bear witness. And God will so engineer the opposition that his spokespeople will be there in the right place at the right time to herald the arrival of God's king. And you see that over and over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles, particularly in the trials of Paul, where time and time again he uses his appearance in front of the secular powers to speak to them of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pause and consider this for just a moment. What might this look like for us? In our age, the prevailing absolute is the claim of relativist pluralism. There is no such thing as truth. All truth is relative. That, of course, your primary school child will point out to you, is an absolute claim. (laughs) The claim of relativistic pluralism, there is no truth, is an absolute claim. To say there is no such thing as truth, that's a claim of absolute. But the claim that there is no such thing as absolute truth, you can have your place at the table just so long as you recognize there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, that is fundamentally counter to the Christian gospel. I am the way and the truth and the life, says the Lord Jesus. I have been crowned king. No other has been raised from the grave. I alone am the one before whom everybody will appear in judgment. And so, yeah, we may get through clever this, that, and the other behavior of wiser serpents, a place at the table through DNI and so forth. But once they begin to realize what the Christian gospel's claim really is, expect hostility. And that's exactly what we find. So at the bank yesterday, they have played their hand with extraordinary shrewdness. I was tempted to say, They've been as wise as serpents, these bankers. Didn't want to draw too many illusions between serpents and the bankers and so forth. But they played their hand really, really well. But when I stopped and said to them, do you see this in the bank? Oh, yeah. The Christian group is tolerated 
at best. Uh, uh, There are multiple ways in which our attempt to give the Christian message a voice in the bank gets disrupted. After extraordinary efforts, our Christian group was accepted in the bank, but only in the UK branch. We keep thinking a day will come when we will be accepted. And Jesus says, no, it won't. Because the Christian gospel is a command with the arrival of God's king to turn around, to surrender to King Jesus, all the blessings that flow through that. But it meets vested interest, hostility. Some here engaged in Church of England politics, don't be surprised at the ferocious hostility. Don't let's be naive. Those in the Church of England who have secured their status through accepting of the ethical norms of our secular culture, well, they've got a huge amount to lose. Their place at the top table, their position in Parliament, their roles on state occasions. They're very alluring, these things, to the establishment religious. Now, verse 21 through 23, we've just got time to glance at it. The sphere of hostility expands, and it actually, I think, is even more painful. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's all. It's for being Christian for my name's sake, it's most painful. We had a young man worked for us for a few years. He came from Egypt. A young American girl had attended the university he was at on placement for a while. As she left, she reached into her holdall in the back of the car and handed him a bag, and in the bag was a copy of the New Testament. He went home and read it avidly. He kept it under a pillow in his bed, wrapped up. One day his mother came into the room. She was looking for something. She lifted the pillow. She found it. He had to flee the country that night for fear of death. We have a mission partner. He's in the country working amongst a Muslim community here in this country. His brother's taken out a fatwa against him, a death threat against him. I remember so vividly one young man. He'd been privileged to have amongst the finest of educations this country's got to offer. He turned to follow Jesus His father turned against him almost immediately. We didn't bring you up and spend all that money for you to give your life to this. He cut him out of his will. Another man used to come here regularly. His wife found out that he'd become a Christian back home. That's not what I married you for. This week I heard of a woman in her 30s. All through Christmas, the family having at her for her Christian faith, having at her for her Christian faith, having at her for her Christian faith. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. 
And in a sense, of course, because this, this is the gospel of the kingdom, and King Jesus is king. And he calls us to turn from our sordid rebellion against God as a whole city, every individual included. Turn. Judgment is coming. Salvation is possible. Surrender to Jesus. I will not take that crown off my own head. Opposition. Well, you wonder why anybody would uh, sign up to this, don't you? Verse 22. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 23. The Son of Man comes. He has come to Jerusalem. He was crucified, died, buried. He rose again. He is enthroned. Uh, Over the page, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, he will by no means lose his reward. Oh, it's worth it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the multitude, the vast innumerable number of men and women who have gone before us and who have stood on the side of truth against extraordinary hostility. We think of brothers and sisters across the world who are experiencing the worst of what we've just been thinking about. And we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, breathe into us courage and conviction and readiness in our day, in our age, to proclaim your gospel openly and clearly for your namesake. Amen.